You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So I'm going to get started. I'm sure a few people will still walk in, but um, I'll, uh, I'll start with a song and then our opening circle, and then we'll dive into Shekhina as Girl which uh, I think will be fun. So this is a song by uh, my friend Holly Taya Shear, um, and uh, Susan just made me think of it, so uh, I'm going uh, to teach it to you. So it's called Shekhina, Thank You for Blessing This Day. And it goes like, and you guys are going to be able to make up verses if you want. It goes like this. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing all we do and all we say. Thank you for blessing this day. So we'll do that one one more time. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing all we do and all we say. Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing where we go and where we stay. Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing how we live and how we pray. Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Anybody have one? Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhina, thank you for blessing this day. So our theme for tonight is the Divine Daughter. There are... And we're going to have to fast forward through a whole bunch of early Kabbalah. So uh, put on your seatbelt. We've got to move fast tonight. Um, but I'm actually very excited about this topic because you know, the maiden you know, is a character that is very rarely um, held sacred in our current culture. Right? It's either sort of Disneyfied right? or it's, you know, it's commodified. You know? and, uh, the, uh, but the girl is a really important mythic figure, like the boy. Um, and uh, it's interesting that in a number of places in our tradition, Shekhin appears not as mother or wife or, you know, adult, but as child, uh, or as young woman on the verge of uh, adulthood, you know, as a maiden in the classic Greek sense, you know, the, the maiden who's about to, uh, about to take on her adulthood and hasn't quite gotten there yet. Um, so we'll see a number of cases where, uh, where she's like that. Um, so the things that I, uh, I brought for, uh, for our cloth uh, today 
Um, of all the toys that my daughter Raya has, there's there's one that I have really coveted. Like I really wanted it, <laughs> you know. And, and so you know, the three little fairies belong to Raya. She has I don't know maybe six of them, and I, I occasionally steal one because I'm always afraid she's going to lose all of them and they'll be gone. Uh, so uh, so those are uh, those are my those are my girl things. Uh, they remind they are exactly the kind of toy I would have wanted when I was a child and didn't have. So. Uh, um, and a dolphin um, is actually a gift. Um, I have a very complicated family history, which I won't go into now, but it is a gift from my biological mother to Raya. Um, so that felt like a really important maiden connection. Um, so I brought that as well. So let's go around. I guess, you know, let's say names another time. It's, it's helpful to people. And, uh, and if you either brought something and want to talk about it, or if you want to mention something from your childhood that you want to bring here tonight, um, Let's uh, let's invite that into our circle, um, and I'd like to start on the on the left if that's uh, okay. All right. Are you? I'm Graham. I haven't brought anything. Can't think of anything at the moment. Okay. Brain's frozen. Have to have like. I'm Jane, and I I brought the kind of the, the glittery thing with, with the pearls and the rhinestones. Um, that is something that my grandmother, the other grandmother, not the one whose photograph I brought two weeks ago, that was my father's mother. This is my mother's mother. She made that by hand for her daughter, my mother, and in, mm. the, in the 1950s. And apparently, something like that was that was fashionable in the 1950s. A woman would wear a little cardigan or something and then put this around her neck, and that was a dressy thing. And um, I've always saved it. I don't wear it. It's, it's really not my style, but I'm so aware of the preciousness that I know with, with every stitch, mm. my grandmother, her, her love for her daughter is, is in that. And it's, um, so it's a thing of special beauty. Mm. I'm Susan, and I wish that I was aware of Chopin in my life as a child. Mm. 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 And uh, today uh, is an auspicious day for us because it is um, for, for a young girl. It is our granddaughter's birthday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, just four days away from our daughter's, both our daughters' wow. birthday. And uh, what I will bring is the uh, one of the gifts we gave to uh, Eleanor today was um, one of the, like my favorite CD and my daughter Rachel's favorite CD when we were growing up which was, um, so I'll just uh, hum a little bit of it, and uh, you guys can, uh, <laughs> doesn't And I'm also very aware that um, all the women in my life are born in this time period. Hmm. So my mother is in March, and my two girls are in February 27th, and Eleanor is today, March 3rd. So March 27th. 
um, special people gave me that mm. our relationships and feelings don't necessarily have that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Nisha knew, I'm going to put in my room, which mm. um, was my mother's, um, that she wore as her wedding ring. And then a while ago, I found this other band that was engraved that was clearly meant to be her wedding ring that I never once saw her wear. Um, but I have so many, like, girl memories of her mm. wearing rings. Audrey, um, I didn't bring anything, but I would like to put the wonder that I had mm-hmm. when I was a child mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. on there, because I think I still had pieces of it. Mm-hmm. I'm Maurice. Um, we're bringing something that's bringing from the Well, we were thinking something related to your youth. Or your feeling of youth, something, something from the, something from the child realm of the archetypal universe. Next week I'll be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> but you're here. That's the important thing. Your inner child is definitely here. So I'm Judy, Eleanor's great aunt. Mm. I, for Eleanor's birthday, I mailed her a kitchen garden. Little sticks with seeds mm. that are labeled. Oh. And that's something that I learned in our youth from our great aunts who helped to raise us. One was a real green... Uh, actually, they both were green thumbs. One had a gar- gardens. And uh, our aunt Gussie, always, it, it was our aunt Molly. She was way ahead of the time. Composting in the 1950s. Urban gardening. Urban gardening, right? And our Aunt Gussie, who used to propagate plants in her apartment in the Bronx. I mean, she was always growing African violets from leaves. Mm. And I love that. Mm. That was part of my childhood. Judy and when I think of girl and energy, I always think of Girl Scout camp. Judy, but do you want to tell I us think, about yeah, the mission? It wasn't anything about girls. That's okay. Tell us anyway. Well, it was one of these fortuitous moments. I was in another study class, and we were looking at sort of breaking down of gender and how, um, and there was a quote here, and uh, of course I've lost it. It was, there's not, um, there's woman, there's, it's from, um, it doesn't matter where it is. I can't find it. But um, it, there's there is woman. There is man. Without woman, there's no woman. There is no man. It's like they're both. And without and and it all comes together to be the Shekhinah. So it was something about a breaking down of genders. And it's one. Ah, oh, here it is. Um, um, without. Without woman, without man, without both of them, there is no Shekhinah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just sh- an usually in the Hebrew, it's 
Lo ish below isha, there's no woman without man. Lo isha below ish, there's, there's no man without woman. And velo shnehem velo shechina, that neither of them exists without the shechina. Beautiful. Thank you, mm -hmm. Judy. That's great. And I didn't know what we were supposed to do, but I did bring this. Um, and uh, this, uh, when, when I was a child, I was always uh, very uh, close to trees. I spent most of my time in the tree. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, all of my artwork is made out of trees. Mm. And um, I remember very distinctly one day, I was way, way, way up in the top of a pine tree, clinging on as I usually did. And the wind was blowing. And I remember hearing my mother chatting with women down below, and they were all like, why do you let your daughter climb trees? You shouldn't let her climb trees. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And they were all anxious and anxious and anxious. And my mother was like, eh, she's fine. <coughs> and, um, you know, she just let me do what I wanted to do and, and let me be who I was. And uh, I found out when, when she died that she was a tomboy. <laughs> and uh, I never knew that about her, and um, I really appreciated that support, and it allowed me to become very close to trees, and um, I remain close to them. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Andrea. Well, you are a gift today. Mm -hmm. I'm Jamie. And I didn't bring a gift, but I just keep thinking about um, my cousin Barbara got married when I was a little girl, and I was the flower girl at the oh. wedding. And I had this really cool, like, yellow organza dress with, like, what dotted, you know, like, Swiss, Swiss tot, and with puffy sleeves, and a bow, a big bow in the back, and I loved to wear that dress. And I ran around the backyard in that dress, and I was very much a princess in that dress. So I am bringing my princess Aww. self to today. Thank you, Jamie. We're just saying your name and hello, and if you want either a, a thing you remember from your childhood or uh, anything you want to share. Okay, my name is Marlena, and my childhood is in like technicolor, so I can tell you a million stories. But um, I'm sharing my fish as long as I can get it back. This is my power trout. <laughs> <laughs> and I once worked with a client, um, realistically, I worked with a client who was the goddess. And the first time we met, she gave me this power trout. And she said, just whack him over your hand, and you will get what you want. <laughs> and it worked. It really, really worked. I, at the time, I had, I was in, uh, I flew around. <laughs> and then I lost my fish I couldn't find him and I just sort of forgot about him one day my mother said to me whatever happened to that green plastic thing well it's recyclable because I've had it since the 90s and I said oh I lost it I wish I could find it and then when I organized with Marla and we went into my two storage rooms at the bottom of my apartment building I I was like, oh, my friend, I found him, and him, her, I don't know what it is, but it's my power trout, and I want it back. <laughs> and yeah. you can all say hi to him. <laughs> He's not as limp as he looks. <laughs> Thank you.
everybody. This was great. <laughs> yes, ask. Please ask. It'll be much better if he gives everybody. I'm scared of getting what I want. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you. Excellent. It's clean. Of all the power animals, I've heard of that's my first power trap. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, there's a whole King Solomon story about the, about a fish, um, where Solomon is actually impersonated by a demon, who then chases him away from the palace and becomes the king. And Solomon wanders around and doesn't know what to do and becomes a cook in somebody else's palace. And um, he um, he falls in love with the princess in this palace, and so. Um, the, her father's angry that she's in love with the cook, so he sends them away, and they're, they're poor, and they're wandering around, and they're fishing for their dinner. And so um, they pull up this fish, and in the fish is Solomon's ring that the demon has thro had thrown away, you know, throwing away the source of his power, and in the fish is the ring, so Solomon has the ring back so he can go back and claim his, reclaim his kingdom, and, and uh, the princess becomes Nama, the queen of, uh, of uh, Israel, and it's, it's a... It's a, it's a really cool story. Little wow. did you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, huh? Oh, you caught a lot of trout. Yeah. I did. I did. I just never used it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I ate them. <laughs> All, right. All right. I'm waiting for the power trout to come around, and then we'll get started. But you want your page, you want page 40 of your packet, if you have a packet in Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. That was very generous. Do you want him to be here? Yes, of course. Okay. You should put her put put the fish down. All right. So. Uh, that's amazing. So before we get to Sefer Habba here, I have to do a little history with you. Um, so in the last few, so we've looked at the Bible. We've looked at some Talmudic texts. Um, last time we looked at, um, what did we do last time? Um, oh, yes, we looked at the Shekinah's exile, so we're looking at Midrashic literature. Right? This time we're going to begin to look at the Kabbalah. Uh, and what's important to understand to sort of enter, and I've already you know, mentioned this a couple of times as we've talked about the development of Shekhinah and the Divine Feminine as, a, as part of the Jewish mythic corpus, um, but it's important to understand uh, the beginnings of Jewish mysticism. So parallel with the Talmudic literature that we have, we read a little from the Talmud, we read a little from the Midrash, at the same time that that a uh, legal and narrative body of work is being composed and people are making the study of Torah and the study of Jewish law an important part of being uh, a Jewish intellectual, right, of the third century. Um, there are also groups of Jews who are gathering to do mystical work. 
Um, and in the Talmud, this is referred to in some very mysterious ways. Sometimes it's called Aliyah Merkava, which means going up to the chariot, um, or Yeridah Merkava, going down to the chariot. Sometimes it's called um, um, going to the, uh, they, they talk, there's something called the Hechalot literature, the palaces, which refers to these fantastical uh, stories that are written about the divine palaces that you go up to if you go to heaven. Um, this uh, this all begins in the apocryphal literature, you know, is sort of uh, contemporaneous with you know before the temple was destroyed. Um, sometimes uh, there, there's a story in the Talmud about the four who went into the garden, the pardes, right? And four go in, and three of them are stricken in some way, and only Rabbi Akiva comes out whole. Uh, that's clearly some sort of allegory about mystical experience. Uh, that you know, it's not for everybody. You know, you have to be very careful about who engages in this activity of trying to directly contact God, right? trying to directly be in communication or be in the presence of God. Uh, but there is this um, tradition, I guess I would call it, of Jews who are doing practical mystical practice, which for us would probably mean something like sitting in meditation. Um, it might um, be similar to you know what shamans do around the world in terms of spirit journey, right? That they're imagining going on a journey, or they're they're. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the ontological status of this. Either they are, or they're you know imagining, right, going to uh, or going to heavenly realms. Um, it sometimes involves um, like we know that there was a practice of people basically standing on their heads, like you know putting their heads between their legs. That was a practice in order to induce mystical trance. Uh, so, in addition to all this legal and uh, nar uh, narrative and cultural stuff that was being written, you know, one of the prayer practices, right, was this very intense mystical practice. And they wrote stuff, and the stuff that they wrote is weird. I mean, it's just hard to make sense of, you know, it's, if you, because they're really working on a different uh, plane and with a different language. So, for example, one of the earliest books of mysticism that we have is called Sefer Yetzirah. Um, it's in like written. We don't. We actually have no idea when it was written, but people were guessing like the third century, something like that. Um, and it begins with a discussion of God's attributes. It has. Um, it's all based on the alphabet, where each letter represents a divine energy. So it's clearly related to a practice of reciting letters and reciting sounds as a way of meditating. So it's connected to mantra meditation essentially. Uh, there's this very long-standing Jewish practice of combining letters as a way of going into trance. So you would start with the Aleph, and you could, would combine it with every other letter of the alphabet, and then you would start with the Bet, and you would combine it with every other letter of the alphabet. Um, and this was a way, and if you actually do it, I mean, it sounds bizarre, but if you actually do it, like all other mantras, it's a way of occupying the conscious mind so the unconscious, right, the, so the deep mind can, can work. Um, and it and it actually I, I've done it with my students. It it really works. It's very effective. Um, so Sefer Yetzirah is the first book to talk about ten spherot, right? That there are ten dimensions of of reality. Now Sefer Yetzirah doesn't talk about it the way that later Jewish mystical books will talk about it, where it's clear that the ten dimensions are part of God's personality, if you will, right? Um, you know, chesed and givura, right? Love and, and strength or judgment. Um, in the Sefer Yesirah, the ten sphere road are as follows. North, south, east, west, up, down, beginning, end, good and evil. Okay? Those are the sphere road in Sefer Yetzirah. 
It refers to the dimensions of space, the dimensions of time, and what they call the dimensions of the soul. Okay, those are the spherot. Um, in, and God is in some way implicated, interpenetrating with all this stuff. Basically, they're describing the spherot as dimensions of reality. Now, if you fast forward several hundred years, you will still see Jewish mystical literature talking about the spherot, but not like that. Right? They, begin, they use the same word, spherot, which has something to do with sphere, sapphire, right? those words, right? that's connected. That's connected to spherot. It comes from the Hebrew word that means to tell or to count. So something about, you know, dimensions is actually not bad as a translation for sphera. Um, but the nature of them begins to change. And instead of kind of platonic attributes that describe the universe, they begin to have more personal qualities. Um, and they're fully developed in the Zohar, which is written in 12th century Spain. You begin to hear about Chesed and Givura and this, you know. But they begin to be talked about in Sefer Haba here, um, which is a Jewish mystical work that's written in um, 12th century Provence, like about, about 100 years before the Zohar. Um, and one of the spherotes that appears in Sefer, and it's not complete. There aren't, there aren't really ten. Like, it's not complete in Sefer Habahir. It's a beginning of the development of the spherot, of the divine, different, div God being in some way divided. Of course, for Jews, this is all sort of borderline heretical, right? Because we thought that, you know, the folks down the block divided God into parts. Like, we didn't know that we did that, right? Um, but for whatever reason, the Kabbalists felt comfortable um, talking about God as having these different faces or realms or... Um, personalities or uh, stages is actually really good because um, the Zohar imagines God developing through these stages. Um, the one of the, of the spherot that is discussed in Sefer Haba here extensively is um, God's daughter, uh, who really, and it, she's described as the daughter, but really she's just part of, she's a part of God. Uh, she's the tenth sphera. She's the sphera that connects God to us. Okay? Uh, so this is where we begin to get the idea that the Shechina is the mediatrix for God. Now, this actually comes really from the book of Proverbs. Remember, those of you who are there, how in the book of Proverbs, uh, wisdom is in some way the channel for God, right? She brings God's wisdom into the world. So what you begin to see in, 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 in this very special time in Jewish history, 12th century Provence, where there were very active, very sophisticated mystical groups, Jewish mystical chevres, uh, you know, little groups working in Provence. Um, a lot of uh, important Jewish mysticism started there. Uh, they're talking about, um, the, the, in these parables, about the king and his daughter. Right? They're partly drawing from the Shechina literature we've read in the Talmud. Right? They're partly drawing from um, uh, the book of Proverbs. Right? And they begin to uh, imagine this tenth sphera, this um, connector between the world of God and the world that we see. Um, they, and they describe her as female. And here they're borrowing from our material last time, right, where the Shechina is you know, a woman who's connected to God and who's here with us in some way, right? God has gone up there, but God's Shekhinah is here with us. So they really take that idea 
and they turn it into the idea that the Shekhinah in some way is, an, is, a, is, is a medium through which we can communicate with God, uh, that she's the connector. And I use the word mediatrix actually really um, consciously, because does anybody know what, what's very popular in, in Christianity in France in the 12th century? Okay, Marianism. Okay, the Virgin Mary as mediatrix for God, right? Very important at that time period. So just to know, we don't know who was talking to who, right? Or, you know, how, to what extent, right, this was influenced. But it, I can't, it's not an accident that at the time in Europe that there is a highly deified female figure who's a mediatrix for God. You know, that the Kabbalists are working on that idea too. So... Clearly, in some way, you know, the, the desire for the feminine figure has worked itself around in such a way that that is affecting everybody at that time period. Uh, so you begin to see these Jewish mystical texts also imagining some part of God, personality of God, that is often depicted as separate from God, is often depicted as God's female relative of some kind, um, who is a sort of window, and actually is a, sometimes even the literal language of window or door is used, between the perfect world where God dwells and our world. And she becomes the, the, um, the medium by which these two worlds can touch. Of course, she's still identified with the Torah, right, which is also the medium through which right, we touch the world. I should say one other thing about um, father-daughter paradigms in the ancient Near East, right? We talked a little bit about mother-son, right? And right, um, there is this, um, I should say earlier in Jewish uh, history, there's a Ph uh, Philo, who's a first century BCE philosopher, who's already talking about wisdom as God's daughter. Father doesn't really like women very much. He really likes wisdom as God's daughter because he doesn't have a mother. He thinks that this is good, you know. Um, but, uh, but that theme actually comes from Greece, right, or is connected to the theme in Greece, right, where Athena comes from Zeus, right? Zeus gives, uh, Zeus produces her out of his head. Um, where you, you see in Greek myth these scenes between fathers and daughters, divine fathers and divine daughters, where, for example, there's this there's the wonderful scene, um, in, uh, I think in Homer, where Artemis is sitting on Zeus's lap, and she says, I want all the forests in the world, and I want my very own bow and arrow, and I want to be a virgin forever so that I can, you know, I can play all the time. And Zeus says, yes, dear. Yes. You know, and he's uh, you know, totally charmed by this little goddess, and he's, yes, yes, anything you like. Uh, and she gets all of these gifts, you know. Um, there's an element of that, I don't know if it's connected, but I'm just, you know, looking at the parallel. There's an element of that in the relationship between, in these stories, between God as father and Shekhinah as daughter. And the idea is that the father wants to, um, wants to be nice to the daughter, right? The father has a particular, um, um, fondness for the daughter that causes him to be more likely to say yes to her than he would to someone else, right? So they use this sort of trope uh, to create the idea that, of course, we would want to go to the Shekhinah because, you know, she has she has an in, you know, she uh, you know he's going to say yes to her. Uh, you see, actually, something very similar 
in Ethiopian Jewish literature, I don't know if you guys know, that Ethiopian Jews were separated from the rest of the Jewish people for so long that their Judaism is much closer to biblical Judaism than to Talmudic Judaism, right? They were separated from, they were separated from Judaism before the Talmud happened. Like, that's how, you know, separate the two communities are. So um, they have a whole, but they, so they don't have any of this, but they have a whole literature of the Shabbat as God's daughter, um, there's a book called Tizaza Sambat, where it's exactly the same thing, where she's God's daughter, and she comes to God and asks God for all kinds of things, and God says, yes, yes, yes. Um, it's a very similar theme. Uh, so, uh, and she's depicted as the princess, right? Shabbat is the princess. So I want to look at some of these texts. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I want to present them with, with the edge that they have, right? They're not, um, they're not perfect texts, right? They're, they're, a lot of them are charming, Right, they also have problems, right? There is a certain, um, there's a certain um, deception going on in the notion that, right, that the father always says yes to the daughter, right? In real, right, in real patriarchal societies, right, it's very rarely the case that the daughter gets what she wants, right? Usually, it's the case the daughter has to do what she's told. So it's, you know, so we should, you know, take these texts with the grain of salt that they deserve. No, and I'm really interested in exploring this, uh, this idea. So I'll, I'll fast forward one second just so that we see the whole arc before you start looking at texts, which is that in a century when the Zohar will be written, we will continue to see these parables about the Shechina as God's daughter, but sometimes we will see it as the Shechina as the daughter of the Divine Mother. Right, that in the Zohar, the Divine Feminine actually has two primary faces, the upper mother, who is the sort of the mother of souls, the cosmic mother, and the lower mother, who's the Shechina, who's engaged in the physical world. And sometimes they are described as mother and daughter. And you even get a kind of Persephone feeling, you know, where there's, they're, they're separated and then they're reunited. So we're going to look at that as well um, and, and, see, uh, and see about that. Okay, so now I think we're ready to dive in. So is, are there any questions or comments about that or thoughts that have arisen in response to any of that? Please. Um, not directly regarding that, although I, I heard somebody say that the Shekhinah is not only just a positive energy, but mm -hmm. can also be a negative energy, where for whatever reason I always thought that the Shekhinah was this wonderful, powerful, loving yeah. thing, and when yeah. somebody said, no, Shekhinah can also be negative, I said, Really? So uh, I'm just throwing that out because I don't think we've ever looked at the Shekhinah yeah. as having that, you know, evil... Right. So you've got to wait three classes. Okay. We're going to go to Shekhinah as monster. Okay. Um, yes. Yes. The Shekhinah and the Zohar is sometimes depicted as... I mean, there are different faces. Sometimes she's depicted as warrior, you know, God's warrior. Sometimes she's depicted as monster, like... Perfect, but exactly. It's a Kali image. She's got comets and swords and spears coming out of her head, and she is, you know, um, you know, she's surrounded by flames, and uh, she eats rivers and mountains, and uh, you know, there's definitely the the Kali image of Shrina, and also there's the idea of that Shrina gets split off from God, um, and then you have this dark energy called Lilith, which is really part of the Shrina, but is this um, sort of um, demonic feminine energy. So absolutely, uh, there, there, there is an element where the Shekhinah is described. 
I wouldn't, I don't know exactly about negative, but there's a sense that she is sort of split off from the forces of chesed, and she becomes an embodiment of the forces of givura, you know, which are often seen as negative or dangerous or you know, scary, uh, and then she becomes kind of monstrous. Uh, we're going to get to it. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at page 40. And by the way, if you want to look along in the Hebrew, the sources from Sefer Habba here on the Hebrew are on page 40. No. Page. Where did they go? 43. 43. Except I seem to be missing them. But oh, here it is. 43. Hmm? I'm sorry? I mean, this objectification, which, you know, runs through, like, all my, like, feminist reading to current, you know, woman on the pedestal, woman is whore, woman is this, woman is that. that, uh, Well, when you're not writing the text, right, then you don't get to be a subject, right? So texts can be positive or they can be negative, but if you're writing about somebody else, no matter who you are, you run the risk of um, sort of flattening them because you're not writing about you. Right, and you know, so when you have a body of literature that was not written by, it's just like I mean, it's it's not really much different from when Christians write about Jews or when white people write about people, you know, uh, you know, who are not white. It uh, you you end up with objectification because the the subje- the subject voice is not present, and and they're not accountable to that voice either, right? It's not like somebody. You know, is is reading this and saying, "Hey, I'm you know, this isn't how I see myself." Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's no there's not that level of accountability, mm-hmm. right? One of the things that we try to do in our, you know, in, in sort of modern open societies, we try to be accountable, right? When we present somebody in a certain way, right, that person gets to say, hey, "Yes, that works for me," or "Hey, that's not how I represent myself." Um, you know, it's it's different when you're in a power dynamic where that accountability doesn't take place. Um, which doesn't mean that we don't learn anything about you know what real women might have been like for you know from these texts, but it's um, you know it's it's through a certain filter, it's through a certain filter. Okay, so let's look at um, well, let's look at the first let's look at the first one. Does somebody want to read uh, Sefer Habayir fifty four, which is the first paragraph? We could really just go around. If so. yeah, thank you, Jean. A certain king has a good, beautiful, and perfect daughter. Mm. He married her to a prince and dressed her, crowned her, and adorned her. And whenever the daughter needs her father or the father needs his daughter, they meet together at the window. Okay, mm. okay so we'll say something about the window in a second. I'm just going to read the Hebrew. Mashal um, Devar So So there, there's a parable. What is this? Um, um, the king had a good daughter who was uh, pleasant and beautiful, and shlima is really from shalom, like whole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he married her to a king's son, uh, just as Jane read. Uh, right? And he uh, dressed her. And he crowned her, and he gave her jewelry. Now, this is actually really important, right? Because in the mystical literature, right, to say that right that the, that the, that someone is dressed, right, in in the, in the mystical literature, the garment is always the outer aspect of the inner, right? 
So to say that the Shekhinah is a garment, that probably means the world, right? Like that's, uh, right, that, that the outer, uh, um, in the Zohar, when the Shekhinah gets ornamented, those are, uh, that's Torah, right? She, uh, like, whenever you come up with a new idea in Torah, like, that's jewelry for the Shekhinah. Um, so, uh, but, you know, here, um, they don't explain, but uh, the, so he does all these nice things for her. Vinanavlao, um, and uh, he gave to her, um, gave to her, gave him to her with lots of uh, lots of uh, wealth. Um, I'm actually going to expand a little bit what Jane read. This this is a this is a little bit um, this is a little bit different. If Charlo Lamelech lishev chutzmi beto, so can a king really go live outside his palace? Not really. Now, the, again, this is important. Can a king go live outside his palace, they say. And then they answer themselves, no. Okay, so that's actually important, right? Can the king go outside the palace? Can he go or can he live? Well, can he live? It says, can he live, right? Can, um, can, can, he, can he live outside his, pal- his house? Amart lo, no, he can't. If Charlo leshevet kol yom tamidima, amarta lo, right? Could he then therefore live with her every day? No. Right. He can no longer live with her. He gives her to the prince. He can't go, and he, he can't leave his palace. He can't go live with her. Do you understand what they're setting up here? That the transcendence right, can't go live with the imminent. Right? If God marries the Shekhinah to the world, right? I mean, here it's really to the Jewish people, but I'm expanding it a little bit. Right? If God marries the Shekhinah to the physical, right, can, the, can the transcendent go and live in the imminent? Not really. Okay, Hakitsad. So what should the king do? Samchalon uh, Um He put a window between him and her. Right? So again, I mean, think about the, this, I, well, it's a wonderful idea, right, of, of the window between the transcendent and the imminent. Right? There's, there's, there's not direct mingling, but there's a window. Makolchach says, Srikaha batla aviha, oha avlavito, uh, and every time that the daughter needs her father or the father needs his daughter, um, they, uh, they join together through the window. And uh, so, so, so this is the parable. So tell me about the last part. So what are they saying about the, like, the connection between the Shekhinah and God? What are they, what are they telling us? What's this, what's this, um, like, father needs the daughter, the daughter needs the father? What, what is that? What do you guys think? Well, that there's an intimate and mutual relationship, mm-hmm. and that there's some way in which they meet. With the window, I mean, that the, the, well, first of all, the window is transparent. Mm-hmm. The window is transparent, and it's always available. And, but I'm curious to know, like, what they perceive as the window. Mm-hmm. Like, what is the way... What is that window? Right. How, right. How does that? Great. Great question. Hold on to the question. Yeah. The, this was written. Windows weren't glass. Windows were open spaces. Mm. Right. It was mm. Mm. The cover just a hole in the wall. It was mm. a hole in the wall. Mm. So it was it was a breach, mm-hmm. a way that they actually could. Mm. I mean, again, when in the time frame. But it's not a door. What does that imply to you, Judy? That. that well, first, I was thinking they could see each other. There was a temporariness about it, but with not being a door, 
there's more of a barrier. Mm -hmm. If there were a door, there could be more coming and going, I would think. So mm -hmm. there's, there's some connection, but there, it's a... Okay, so it's not like things are freely passing between the worlds, but there's a, there's a portal for communication. Well, I mean, that's how I would window, describe it. Like, um, we can see the moon, um, mm. and moon rays can come in through a window, just like the sun can come in through a window, so there is kind of like... Mm -hmm. Like so there is something that, that can, can pass through yeah. a window. Okay, okay, yeah. The other thing is, um, very often, the first love of a daughter is the father. And the looking, uh, mic track, not anybody else's, but she's looking up, the Shekinah is looking up, and he's looking down at her, so mm -hmm. there's something there mm -hmm. as well. Well, she is in some ways of both worlds. Right, she's married to the prince in her world, which we have to, I think, here understand as the people Israel, right? So she's, you know, she's living in that house in that world, but there's still a tremendous tenderness between her and her father, right? So she's really connecting those worlds, and when she brings needs to her father, what are those needs likely to be? Things she hears, so the people around her. Okay, so she's bringing the needs of the lower world, right, to her father. And if you think about if she's married to the prince, right, so the needs are going to be for him, for her children, right, for her, the people that she's governing, right? So she will then become the conduit for the needs of the, right, for the needs of the lower world and for the needs of the people. Yes, yes. The fact that he needs her as much as she needs him mm -hmm. speaks to that God needs us as much as we need God. Right. And right. I mean, that was very beautiful, yeah. that there's this Love. seems equal um, need for each other. Yes, and, and therefore the needs of the, of the upper world can be passed to her, right? That, that we can receive those needs from God, right? We have, a, we have a portal for understanding what God's needs are, right, for, from us. This is very important to Kabbalah, that in the Kabbalah, human beings are very important. Like, we have the power to meet God's needs. Like, we have the ability to do world repair, right? To, in some way, um, affect heaven through our actions. So, in all the Kabbalah, there's always the sense that, the, that the God is very much in need of the actions of, of human beings. Which is really, uh, really quite powerful. Absolutely. Is there also something about the king? Dressing her and crowning her and adorning her, that God is leaving her with a piece of divinity. Mm. That she's mm -hmm. walking around in the world yeah. having possessions or having some tangible connection to God. Absolutely. Absolutely. That she is the source of. Of wealth, but this is wealth in the in the energetic sense, almost right in the in the, in the spiritual sense, right? That she's the source of blessing because he's given her all the stuff, right? Not only her own personal ornaments, but Mamun Rav, right? He gives her a lot of his wealth to take with her, right? So she's the conduit for spiritual abundance, right, into the world, and maybe even for physical abundance in the coming into the world. Okay, so this is the $40 million question. <laughs> okay, that is the question, right? So who, <laughs> right, who is she, 
right? It's the same question we were asking to, you know, when we talked about the, 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 the wisdom woman in the book of Proverbs. Who is she? You know, is she God? Is she not God? Is she something in between? What's going on? Um, the Zohar is much more explicit about all of these energies being um, contained in God. Really safer how here is too, but maybe slightly less programmatic about it. The official position of the Kabbalah is that Shekhinah is, is God. The official position of the Kabbalah is that Shekhinah is also us. So you go and figure that out. Um, it, the, I, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. It, because she really represents some sort of medial, medial entity that is a blending of God and the world. It, and the reason they can get away with that is the Kabbalists are really pantheists. They really believe that the world is God, right? That the substance of the world is God's substance. Right? It's veiled, but it's all God's substance. So they get away with having this character who is both God and the world because for them, that's actually normal. Right? It's normal to have things that are both God and the world. But it's a very hard question to answer. Um, is, is she God or not? Um, she certainly is in a, in a way that the Zohar understands the Sfirot, right? She is, she is a, an energy within God. She is a particular movement of God's spirit, if you will. Um, but you often get these stories where it seems more like she's a kind of mediating angel, almost. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's complex. It's a very complex question. Okay, let's uh, let's try one more from Safer Hubbard right here. Okay. Um. So let's try the second one. This is um, Safer Hubbard here, sixty-three. And I think I'm just going to read through the in, in the Hebrew. Um, so it starts out actually by saying uh, that there are 32 paths. And this is a quote from Sefer Yetzirah. So you see that this is connected to early Jewish uh, literature. The, the three, 32 paths are the 22 Hebrew letters and the 10 spherot. Right there you get 32. All right. So but then we say... Uh, Mashal, all right. So, so what is it like, these 32 paths? It's like a king, Mashal Lamelech, Shaya Bechadrei Hadarim, Uminayin Hadarim Lamedvav, Lashim Vishtayim. So it's like a king who had lots and lots of, uh, who, who, who was, uh, had many rooms and was in the most innermost room. Uh, the king lived in the innermost room of many, many rooms. Um, and how many rooms were there? There were 32. So they're actually describing, like, how do you understand spherot? It's like lots of rooms, and in the inner room is God. Well, um, the and for every room there was a there was there was a path to each room. So again, so again, you're thinking mystically, right? You want to get to God. How do you go? You have to go along certain paths, right? You have to follow certain pathways to get to the truth. Um, um, should the king um, bring everyone into the innermost room, you know, through the, uh, through these paths, 
right? It, would it be proper for the king to invite everyone into the innermost chamber? Uh, again, think about what the mystical meaning of this, right? That, uh, that it's, the transcendent doesn't invite you in to the heart of transcendence so easily, right? The mystic doesn't immediately penetrate, right, to the place of eternity, right? That's not how it works. Right? Ask, it doesn't matter which mystic or what tradition, ask. They'll tell you it doesn't work this way. I'm not low, right? No, of course not. Now, Elo Ligalot Paninav, Vishibet Shibet Sutsatav, Umitsaponav, Viginzav, Vichamudatav, is it Amartalo? Is it proper for the king to go around revealing uh, the pearls and the tapestries and the treasures and the precious things and the hidden things? No. The king doesn't, doesn't just take out all the, you know, take out the crown jewels and go around showing them to everybody. This isn't, this isn't what kings do. Masa. Nagababat. The kalalba kol nativot umilivusha baharotsel haknis bifnim yistakhel hena. Venasala Melech Gam Natanalo Bamatana. So, what does the king do? He touches his daughter and he includes in her all the paths uh, and uh, all uh, in her um, and uh, includes them in her and in her garments. And one who wants to go inside should look there. Right? So in other words, if you, want to, if you want to get to the transcendence, you can't run to the transcendence. You have to go to the Shechina, because she is the vehicle by which the imminent and the transcendent touch. So you have to go to her. Uh, and um, he married her to a king and gave her to him as a gift. So again, this is a, again a hint of the Jewish people, but maybe a hint of the mystic. Right? If you imagine the mystic is enrolling himself as the king, who's married to the Shechina. Right? So he gives her to the king as a gift. Ah, so this is, um, and sometimes, they're about to quote an important midrash, and sometimes he calls her in his love for her, my sister, because they come from one place. So there's this, um, in, the, in the Song of Songs, uh, the lover calls to the, the, the beloved, and he says, um, my sister, my beloved, uh, my, uh, my perfect one, my dove. So the, the, this is actually confusing for the interpreters because they think the male voice in the Song of Songs is God and the female voice is Israel. So why is God calling Israel his sister? You know, that's a little bit of a come down for God, right? Like, what does that mean? So there's a lot of commentary written on this, but here it says, well, why does he call him, uh, why did, uh, but here the sister is the Shechina, right? They're interpreting the sister in the Song of Songs as the Shechina. And why sister? Because we come from one place. Now this is very important, because right? this is where they're saying the Shechina and God come from the same place, right? It's not that the Shechina is not of God's substance. She's not a lower being. She's part of God, right? Um, but, right, they come from one place, which implies that they are now, if they come from one place, what is, now they're separate, right, in some way. So it's complicated. 
And sometimes he calls her man his daughter because she's his daughter. And sometimes she, he even calls her my mother. And this is also from the Song of Songs where uh, it's, there's, a, there's a verse about the mother. So that's interesting. So what does it mean that they come from one place but she's his daughter? I feel like a Trinitarian theologian now, but I'm asking you the question anyway. What does that mean? They come from one place. And why does he call her his daughter? Because she's his daughter. I think linear. And she's his mother. Right. That's linear or rational. Because actually you think you can't be a daughter and a mother and a self. Okay, so I'm... I'm, I'm just, I, I just have to say, last night I went to hear this most amazing performance of Thunder Perfect Mind. Thunder Perfect Mind is a Gnostic poem from very, very long ago, written in Coptic. It's, it's in a female voice. It's, it's very famous, and it concludes paradoxes. Those who know me don't know me, and those who don't know me know me. I am the virgin and the whore. I am the mother, but I never gave birth. Right? I am, uh, like, it's, um, it's, it's full of paradox. And it's exactly like this. It's like the paradox is like the koan. It's like you, can't, you break the mind on it. Right? You can't make, how can she be his mother and his daughter? That doesn't make any sense. Unless you're a mystic, in which case, right, you sit with it and then it makes sense. Right? But it, 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 it can in a, in a, a biological way make sense to me because, some, like, DNA, for instance, we are our mothers. And our daughters are our grandmothers, yeah. and we're all the, you know what I mean? It's, we yeah, are that's great. all that we, we are. So I love so, what you're saying, because even though these guys didn't know about genetics, I think that they, they're absolutely saying, so if there's a stream of energy, and we divide it like this, right? And we say, this came from that. So this is the parent, and this is the child. But if you don't, if you understand that if you, if you go into a world where time doesn't exist, Right, and causality isn't the way we think it is, right? then there is no parent and there is no child. You can read it either way. You know, it's all energy. Right? It's all a flow of divine energy. So I think they're saying something quite similar to what you're saying, right? that like, it's all con they're all connected and they're separate. Right? And it's, but the, the, the substance is being passed and transformed and, sh and, sh and shifted, but it's still the same substance, which is basically what you're saying about genetics. Judy, did you want to say something? Oh, no, I mean, you had said we were Trinitarian. I mean, it's so much more I said from the gospel, my master's mansion has many rooms. Right, 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 right. And nothing about the 200-year fight to describe the nature of Jesus was the um, man or was the God. It's just interesting. Absolutely. That is why. People with long hair should never wear microphones. But okay. <laughs> really. Um, yeah, please. There's a sense of oneness in the universe, and there's a oneness to God. Then it does make sense. Again, it's not linear, but it all makes sense that we all come from the same place. Right. That if we all come from God, then our mother, our sister, our daughter are all coming from the same place. So in, in that sense, it makes sense. Yes, absolutely. We're from the yeah. same particle. Yeah. 
I want to say one more thing, and this really has to do with like the mythic place of women in tribal societies. But do you see how these two men who are separate are connected by the woman? Right, that the father and the husband are now uh, irretrievably connected. I mean, this is how societies use marriage. Right, you have two, let's say, two royal lines, hmm. and they're separate, the and you want to merge them. Right, what do you do? You take a son from one line, you take a woman, from, you know, a girl from another line, you put them together, and they have babies, and now your line is, you know, I don't know, it probably doesn't obviate the political problems, but, you know, now you have you know, union where there was separateness. So they're using that metaphor to talk about the way that we are linked to God. Right, that in some way there is this medial movement of God that allows us to be linked to what we would otherwise not be linked to. Right, that, it, that our physical separateness from, from the transcendent would be irre irreparable were it not that God has provided this window. Right, that somehow God has between our world, right, where there's death and there's separation and there's, you know, confusion and there's, you know, physicality, right, and the world where everything is one, right, because they're, you know, living in that dualistic way, right, that there's, there, there is this mysterious window, right, there, there is the possibility that those two worlds are not separate, right, and this is really in some ways a description of the mystical experience, right, that you're sitting with all your stuff and your shopping list and your misery and your childhood and whatever you're sitting with. And suddenly, you know, you're in the, the ocean, right? It's, you're there. You're in the space of oneness. How did you get there? You know? Like, they're, they're, they're trying to talk about that. Like they're trying to talk about that experience. Like, how do you go there? Right? So they imagine that there's this grace, there's this thing called the Shrina, who provides a window, who provides the possibility of communication. The right? conduit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the despair. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, right. Absolutely. And remember that for them, separation is huge, because it's not long after the exile. It's not long after the destruction of the temple. So for them, you know, the possibility that the world is actually meaningless, you know, is 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 real. It's very real. Uh, and so for them, this is a this is a really a salvific kind of image, you know, that there is a window, that there is a possibility of communication, that they haven't been abandoned to the world of, of randomness. Um, yes. Yes, absolutely. And if you trace it back to Sefer Yetzirah, which says the spherot are really the dimensions, right? Then in the physical world, in every dimension of the physical world, right, there is that window, right? There is that that connection back to God. Absolutely. Right. I want to look at the the, the next one only because it's it's from the liturgy. So you you guys are going to have to say the kedusha very differently after uh, after uh, after <laughs> after the next five minutes. Okay, great. Um, so this is from Sefer Habakkuk here one thirty one. And it says again it's a mashal, a parable of a king 
Lamelech Shahitalo Matranita Bechadaro. And here she appears as his wife, by the way. This is not the, the girl, but um, she, um, he had a lady uh, in his rooms. Um, and Shakol Chayelutav Mishtashimba, Mishtashimba, that that all of um, all of his soldiers uh, really enjoyed her, really liked being, you know, really um, the, she was very important to them. Vahayula, right? So this is, um, you know, this the soldiers are us, I guess. Vahayula <laughs> banim, and she had children, she had sons. Uvaim b'chol yom lerotz pnei hamelach u'mevarchinoto, and every day they came to bless the king and to uh, to greet him. So you think about prayer, right? Every day they came. Amrulo imenu anuhi, and they would say to him, "Where's our mother?" Amar lahem lotochlu lerotota, and he he would say, "You can't see her." Amru bruchatehi b'chol makom shehi. Blessed is she wherever she is. Blessed is she wherever she is. Now this, remember when we say Baruch Havod Adonai Mimakomo? That's what they're talking about. That when we say, blessed is the glory of God from its place, what we're saying is, even if we can't see the Shekhinah, blessed is she wherever she is. All right, that's, that's their interpretation of that line. All right, so that's Sefer Habakkuk. <laughs> So here you see the Shechina as girl, though really she's marriageable girl, right? The Shechina as daughter. And daughter comes to mean something that proceeds from God, right? Something that in some way is a, um, she is an, um, a development of God, right? That connects the world of our, of our the generation of our world with the, pre, with the generation of the transcendent in some way, right? That she's the... She's the, um, the, the link through her marriage. But now I want to look at a, a very different uh, picture of the girl. And here you have to look at page 41 and 42. Oh, how do I even explain this? Okay. Um, Okay, so some of you, many of you are from Ramamu, some of you have heard Rabbi David speak about uh, me and ma, right? That me, who, is a name for God in the Zohar, and that ma, what, is also a name for God. So the more complicated story about that is that me is a name for Bina. In the Zohar, the, the top three spherotes are Ketzer, Chochmah, and Bina. In the Zohar, Chochmah has somehow stopped being a woman and become a male, Chochmah becomes the father figure. Keter is sort of the, 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 the supernal point. It's like the divine will. It's the place out of, it, out of the transcendent that, that God begins to extrude into our universe. Chochmah is the point of creative light, very much seen as the seed. I mean, this is totally biological, like very much seen as the seed. And Bina, which is the female version of Chochmah, of wisdom, Bina also meaning wisdom or understanding, is the is the crucible right? She's the container of the spark of light. So again, if you think about the right, it's uh, it's all biological metaphor. So you think about the womb. Bina is seen as the as the mother, as the mother, in the same way that Chokhmah is seen as the father. Bina is seen as the mother, the mother of souls, the mother of the cosmos. 
Bina's name in the beginning of the Zohar is Mi. From whose womb, Mibet and Mi, from whose womb came the ice, Job says. So the Zohar came the ice, came the Kerach. Like it, Job, uh, in, in the book of Job, there's a long discourse on uh, who could, you know, you don't know anything about how I created the world. So God asked Job unanswerable questions, like, right, did you create the Leviathan? Or, you know, who, you know who, who's the father of the rain? And one of the questions is, from whose womb came the ice? And so the Zohar reads it, misreads it, and says, the womb of ice is me. Her name is me. Um, so the, Bina becomes me. And Shrina is called Ma. Right? And here they quote this phrase, um, um, how glorious your name is in all the earth. Um, Makavod, uh, right? I don't have the Hebrew here. Or maybe, oh yes, wait, I do. I do. Ma'adir Shimcha Arts, right? How powerful is your name in all the earth? Um, so that Ma at the beginning, which in Hebrew is simply an, um, it's an exclamation, right? How powerful, how glorious is your name and throughout the earth? Um, they say Ma. Right, they read it as Ma is the power of your name throughout the earth. So the name of Shrina becomes Ma. You I thought know. Ma was what, though. Ma is what? Was but how. in biblical Hebrew, there's no distinction. It's like, it's like where you would say how glorious, they say what glorious is your name throughout the earth. Like it's, it's just hard to translate. But it, it means the same thing. Um... So Ma becomes the name of Shrina. So I want you to look at the end of this. So you see where it says Shrina as the daughter of the Cosmic Mother? So I want you to look at the last four lines. I'm not going to try to explain the whole thing because it's just too, it's just too hard. But, um, you know, it is, it is important. So you see the part that says God is above the heavens in regard to God's name in the middle of the paragraph? So in other words... God, right, this transcendent is high up in the heavens, um, but God's name is down here. The Shekhinah is being identified with God's name, right? We have God's name. God created a light for his light, and one formed a garment to the other. So in other words, the Shekhinah is like the light around God's light, right? She's like the garment for, right? She's the garment, right? She's the, the outer She's an outer manifestation of God. Then God ascended into the higher name. So now they're going to drush for us, right? God went up to the transcendent world. Bereshit bar Elohim, the first three lines of Torah, right? Um, in the beginning, God created. Um, so Elohim, they translate to mean Bina, the cosmic mother. So in the beginning, Bina created. But Ma wasn't there at the beginning. She wasn't the, the, create, the creatrix. And she was not built up until the hour that the letters of Ayla were drawn from above below. Okay, this is really complicated, but basically the letters Ayla represent the Sefirat Tiferet, which is the masculine energy that's paired with Shekhinah. Um, and... So Tiferet is the link between Bina and Shekhinah. Okay, so there's always, there's always a gender polarity in the Kabbalah. There's always a, 
a, a, an opposite gendered uh, entity that is transposed between two entities of the same gender. So here Tiferet is drawing the energy down from the cosmic mother to Shekhinah. And the mother lent the daughter her garments and adorned her with her adornments. In other words, the cosmic mother sent Bina, sent her gifts down through Tiferet to Shekhinah. Okay, so they're describing that cosmic flow. And in the next piece, when the Holy One of Blessing created the body of Adam, it was created from the earth of the earthly temple. In other words, it was created from the substance of the Shekhinah. But his soul was given to him from the earth of the celestial temple. And that's Bina. So in other words, we have two parts, right, according to the Zohar. We have a body. The body comes from the Shekhinah. We have a spirit. The spirit comes from Bina. So in us, the mother and the daughter are unified. Right? That she's, um, right, she's, um, in some way they become, they, 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 we, we have two components from, we have a component from each of them. That's kind of interesting. Right? As a, you know, as an archetype, I mean, mothers and daughters barely appear in the Bible. Like, mothers and daughters don't even talk to each other. They, I mean, there are mothers and daughters, but they don't, you know, they don't talk. Oh, like, there's no, yeah. like, they don't talk to each other. Sisters talk sometimes, but mothers and ne daughters never. So here they're actually positing this very dynamic relationship between Bina and Shekhinah, you know, as mother and daughter, as, um, you know, as uh, creatrix and uh, mediatrix, right, in some way. So the last one is the one I really wanted to show you. Okay, so they're quoting this verse. Why are there no mother-daughter yeah. relationships? Uh, it's the same issue that we've really been talking about. If, if you are not focused on, and you don't witness female-female interaction, right, then you don't write about it. You know, because that's not where the, the drama is if, you're, if your main action is, you know, Abraham and God and Isaac and how the sons are going to take over from the fathers. Like, right, the mother-daughter relationship is not, it's just not important. Right, it's not interesting. It's just not there. Mostly, they do. They don't even know they're in yeah. the room. They might not even right. be in the room. Ruth and Naomi are the exception. Ruth and Naomi are the, and they're not even mother and daughter, but they're close. Ruth and Naomi are the exception. Do you think there's any possibility that those female writings, that, that some of the authors of the Zohar were female? I would so love it if that were true. Um, I, I can't say absolutely no. Because we know that there were female Kabbalists. Mostly they didn't write. They were dream interpreters. They were healers. Like, the men write about them sometimes. Mostly the women did not write. They weren't necessarily literate in the kind of Aramaic that you would write in if you were writing mystical literature. The, you know... I would love it to be true. I've never seen any evidence that it might be true. The best that I you know, would really hope for is that some of these groups may have had women in them or women attached to them. Maybe not officially in the group, but a daughter who was listening in or a wife who the guy went home and told her what his group said. You know, like There may have been women around who were interested in the same thing um, and they may have been influencing some of this. It's possible. 
It is very interesting that this particular tradition from Provence that began the whole thing with Sefer Habahir and the Zohar, their meditative tradition uh, you know, was passed down through generations. They moved to North Africa because during the Inquisition a lot of them fled. And interestingly, it was some of the women in the family who kept alive these meditative traditions. And Madame Colette, she was a very important uh, Kabbalistic meditation teacher in Jerusalem, she just died like 10 or 15 years ago, was from one of these families that were descended from Isaac the Blind, who was one of the Kabbalists in Provence. And she said, this is the method that my mother taught me. Because in our family, it was the women who kept alive these meditative traditions. Like the men were doing other stuff, and like they weren't doing this, and the women were keeping alive these traditions. So it's definitely not impossible that there were women who were involved here. If they were, the men don't quote them. I mean, not until later. Chaim Vital quotes women. But uh, the Zohar, but the Zohar, you know, they don't even quote men because they're, they're pretending that it was all written by Shimon Bar Yochai in the time of the Talmud. So they don't even quote themselves. So it's so hard to have any idea, like, you know, who was involved but it's not, you know, it really isn't impossible. I mean, given the, the huge prevalence of female images in the Zohar, it really, it isn't impossible. It really isn't. Jim, yeah. I wanted to ask you a question about the sound of the name. Mm-hmm. Um, in the rough work that I've done, and, and the, um, just as warm-up exercises, an actor, for instance, you do me, me, ma. Mm-hmm. Me, me, ma. Right. And I'm wondering if the relationship of the sound of the of, of yeah. the divine is related to the sound that you make in the various centers of the face. Yeah, I love that. And then Mo's right there. And then <laughs> You know, I do think that they may have been working with the idea of seed syllables. Because we know that they had this tradition of combining letters. And they must have been aware that some of those combinations were very resonant. Like they must have been aware of that. So while they don't put it that way, I would I would not be at all surprised if they were interested in that, you know that the, that they pick me and ma, you know they're they're also doing exegesis. They're also pulling these words because they see them in text, but I'm I'm sure that they were thinking of them as seed syllables in some way. When you say seed, well in um, in um, Sanskrit, there are certain syllables that I've heard. I'm I'm not an expert, but I've heard called seed syllables that have to do with the resonance of the syllable opens the uh, the chakras, you know, in a certain way. Breath, um, hmm? breath of life. Mm-hmm. Great. So I want to look at what time is it? We're not going to have time to meditate. We need time to meditate. Oh my gosh! Okay. All right. So I'm just going to quickly summarize. The last thing I wanted to tell you from the Zohar is that they talk about that on Yom Kippur. What is the special quality of Yom Kippur that allows for this great reconciliation? That only in Yom Kippur do the Shechina and Bina come together and become one being. That that's the moment when the cosmic mother and the Shechina become one being. So, in other words, the transcendent creative force and the sort of the broken creative force become the same force. Um, I mean, it, it, and it, it really is described in language that's... Um, you know, almost like, um, you know, that, that, that's almost like Demeter and Persephone, like where they're, um, like they're, they're separated and then they're, uh, one is, you know, and one is sort of almost in the underworld, like she's in this world and it's like a scary world. And then they're, they're brought back together 
Um, it's really quite, quite beautiful. So we just have a few minutes, um, but I, I want to just do, um, if we can just uh, put our stuff down, I want to just do a, a, a minute. I'm going to turn off the light if that's okay. Actually, well, as we're getting ourselves uh, into meditative space, why don't we use some of these syllables? So join me in saying, Ma. to this body that is not only yours now but has been yours since before your birth and has been growing and changing ever since it was a single cell that became a double cell and grew and grew until it became the you that you are in this moment invite you to see before you a place where children play. It could be a playground, it could be a playroom, it could be the woods. And as you are in this place, walking around this place, looking at what's here, You'll hear the voice of children or child playing. And among the voices that you hear is the voice of a little girl. And as you round the next corner, you see the little girl. What she looks like. What she's doing and saying. And she looks up when she sees you. And 
you go over to her to where she's playing. And you sit down next to her. And she invites you to play with her. And as she does, she hands you a toy. Whatever it is that you imagine. She tells you something about play, about the place of play in your life. Listen to what she says about play. take her gift and play. When the game is over, she runs off. And you look after her, and you see trailing after her the echo, the radiance, the shadow of something divine. And if you look at yourself in this moment, you can see the child in you who played with her. And taking her gift and her play. You begin to rise and leave the space and walk through the place of play until you come back to this space. And taking another breath, we say together a syllable that is her, that perhaps she is accustomed to saying.
and coming back here. Mm. Mm. You won't have time to process this one, but I encourage you to write it down and to be with your own little one this week. Next week we will be working on, I think, the Divine Mother. So uh, we'll do a little bit of mother work. And if you want to bring a mother thing uh, for our altar, please feel free to do that. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing all we do and all we say. Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing how we work and how we play. Thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing this day. Shekhinah, thank you for blessing.